This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. What's the first thing you'd do if you had more time in the day? Take a nap? Read a book? Talk with a friend? When you know what's important to you, it's easier to fit it into your schedule. Therapy can help you figure that out. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Writer's Voice today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Writer's Voice. This is the Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Rivka Galchin read her story, How I Became a Vet, from the March 13, 2023 issue of the magazine. Galchin is the author of three books of fiction, including the story collection American Innovations and the novel Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch, which was published in 2021. Now here's Rivka Galchin. How I Became a Vet When I say vet, I do not mean veteran. A veteran is someone formerly in contact with death on a regular basis. A veterinarian is someone currently in contact with death on a regular basis. Part of me is moved to specify that not all veterans have been in contact with death, nor are all veterinarians so on a regular basis. But I'm older now. I know that many people experience such clarifications as weird. Weirdness does, though, generate uncommon strengths. Such was my experience with the suicide dogs, who, like most of us, were not what they seemed. Joy is an ethical obligation. I was raised to believe this. I have not abandoned the proposition. Joy is the proper response to the gift of life that God or something has bestowed upon all of us day after day after day, and then at some point for no more days. Sorrow is an obligation, too, and a wonder and a necessity, but sorrow is joy's servant. My father is an Anabaptist. When I was in middle school, I researched the Anabaptists. That one made one's own path to God made sense to me, and that baptism followed rather than formed a spiritual relationship, sure. But too much of what I read made me think that this was a path through a 500-year-old landscape that had since vanished. I came to the conclusion that my father had made an error. It was the wrong time period to be an Anabaptist, I told him. The sect didn't make sense anymore, I said. It was like pursuing dodo birds, however glorious. He said he'd keep what I'd said in mind. I believe he did keep it in mind. Though I don't recall many further conversations about it. My father, now 70, was recently diagnosed with chronic leukemia. The diagnosis has altered his personality in no perceptible way. My father raised me all by himself with great dignity. He was and is a practical man. 
He taught me how to put my hair in a tidy ponytail. He took me to buy tampons when that was required. And he let me work with him on his small goat farm. We had dogs all my childhood, sometimes two, occasionally three. Famously, dogs have a natural gift for the ethical obligation of joy. Our dogs, my dad said, were great role models. He was correct. It is very difficult and also not engaging to speak in detail about dogs I have loved who are no longer with us. I will not do so. I see enough death in my job. That I could become a veterinarian or anything that required extensive schooling was a revelation in no way telegraphed. My first eight years of school could be summed up by the absence in my classrooms of any sense that joy was an ethical obligation. Those classrooms were not bad places. Those teachers were not bad people. My own misunderstandings were the reasons that the settings did not please me. Some of the acts of imagination that we were called to undertake seemed too silly. For example, there was a man made out of cardboard who we were told, quote, lived behind the chalkboard. The cutout was stored behind the chalkboard, and we were meant to invite him out for our grammar lessons by calling him by name three times like a spell. On rainy days, we were allowed to play board games like Sorry and Battleship, both of which I found to be unreasonably aggressive. My father often told me that I made, quote, errors of interpretation in my sense of other people. He also told me not to worry too much about any of it. Then in high school, or maybe a beat earlier, something abruptly shifted for me. As all my peers were beginning to go alfalfa, I started to grow as straight and fast as cat grass. And any piece of knowledge I was offered delighted me, and I devoted myself to mastering whatever came my way. I'm still not sure why that happened. Perhaps new gut bacteria or the intervening hand of the most old-fashioned and personal sort of God. After years of nearly failing each grade, and actually failing third grade, and years of my father being called in for discussions with a series of teachers, each of whom wondered if I might be better served by a different kind of classroom, I was able to obtain a degree in veterinary medicine. This accomplishment gave both my father and me tremendous joy. But I knew not to rest on my laurels, because the way we move through time is by an accumulation of unexpected turns. On Tuesday, I saw a cat who had eaten a lily. I saw a 40-pound poodle mix who had chewed through a bottle of Advil. I saw a vomiting St. Bernard who was suspected of volvulus. Around 11 p.m., an older man came into the ER with his male beagle mix, who had jumped out the open window of his truck while it was stopped in traffic. The dog suffered bilateral tibial fractures. All these animals were interesting and worth learning about and deserving of care. But I am going to tell you about the beagle mix. He had jumped out of the truck and off the bridge over the Arikari Creek on Highway 119. The dog's name was Ohio. His owner, that is the term RER uses. We have had meetings proposing alternative terms, but for now we are sticking with owner over pet parent or caretaker. Said multiple times that Ohio was accustomed to driving with the window open and that this had never happened before. I didn't believe this man. I did not believe this man. I put a small sharpie dot next to the detail in my mind. 
I myself don't tell lies. This is a handicap. Once I came to understand how much other people rely on lying, I began marking unverified statements like this in the graph paper notebook of my mind. This is essential in veterinary medicine, where people leave out all sorts of important, unflattering details. I should say that it is 12 years now that I've been working at this veterinary emergency clinic, but it has recently been taken over by a new company. As a result, certain protocols have changed, and not all of them accord fully with my values. Still, working here suits me better than attempting to establish my own practice, which would involve a great deal of client management, design decisions, cute postcards reminding people about vaccines, and so on. I would be a failure. So I stuck to protocol and did not pursue more information about why, that day of all days, Ohio had jumped out of the car. We x-rayed and bandaged Ohio and sent him home with his owner, along with pain medication and information about how to be alert to any signs of infection. After that, I had to deal with a very sick parrot. I did the intake and the workup, and the parrot turned up positive for psittacosis. A strong memory I have from my time as a veterinary intern is of a shoebox being handed to a client and my knowing that the shoebox contained a deceased parrot. It seemed to me a very strange protocol. But all protocols have a seed of strangeness within them, around which the protocol has grown, perhaps to protect and nourish that strangeness as much as to obscure it. I explained to the parrot's owner, he said he preferred the term caretaker, that his parrot had tested positive for psittacosis. I wrote the word down on a sticky for him, because it's not an easy word to hear. I explained the forking paths available to him, the poor outcomes that were likely, and indicated that the receptionist, Kelly, would be able to run a cost estimate. Kelly was eating a lemon popsicle, but set it down on a napkin and began preparing the paperwork. In the veterinary ER, almost every day has a walk-on part for sorrow. I moved on to the next patient, a Shih Tzu with paw trauma. A short time later, I was called back to the waiting room. The parrot's human told me that he had researched what I had shared with him and that his bird did not have chlamydia. That was impossible, he said. The bird lived alone. The bird lives with you, I asked, with no other birds. The pathogen here is, yes, called chlamydia sitaki, And the disease caused by that pathogen is psittacosis, I said. But there are many chlamydias. No, he said. His voice was loud, angry, and certain. It is not the same as the more famed chlamydia variant. The bird had no bird lovers. It was a solo bird. As we spoke, Kelly was finishing her lemon popsicle with her left hand and tapping at her keyboard with her right. I had no more information to offer this human, and I said... I have nothing more to offer you. Then I went to the back, to the surgical section, to breathe and transition. Such encounters are very fear-inducing for me. I do not have a knack for, quote, shaking off the anger of others. I need that knack, but I don't know how to acquire it. I spoke to the father in my mind. In reality, my father was in Kansas, and I was in Colorado, and I strongly dislike speaking on the phone, But this father in my mind is kind and useful and a good listener, too. 
I told him that people are often unhappy in our waiting room, and that was an immutable truth. He said, Do you like working there with all those sad people? I often pictured you working more with the worried well, you know? Maybe on a farm. Remember when we met that sheep who was very sociable and not afraid, not like the other sheep? I often think of that sheep, he said. I too often thought of that sheep. Knowing what I know now, I think that that outgoing with human strangers sheep probably had a traumatic brain injury or a tumor. I love my job so much, I said to my vision of the man who was an Anabaptist living in Kansas with a simmering cancer. And this parrot owner is going to try to separate me from this thing that I love most. This job, I believe, is the best use of me on the planet. I do have a small space in my heart held open for the possibility of xenobiology, but I love my job. A benevolent listener might worry that I was overreacting to a single unhappy client, owner, caretaker. But the new management of our clinic with its new protocols, unknown and shifting protocols, made me feel, and probably be, vulnerable. Maybe other instabilities were also at play. I'm not going to argue that I'm the best veterinarian of this century, or even this zip code. But I am thorough and pragmatic, and I have a gift for setting distressed animals at ease. A gift not quantifiable. I communicate well with creatures that can't speak, including infants. Though it was once suggested to me that infants are very drawn to people who wear eyeglasses, so maybe I'm being prideful. Maybe it's just my glasses. I'm also good, albeit not exceptional, with run-of-the-mill adults. This is because when I was in college, I followed around an obstetric nurse, April, who went to church with my father. An obstetric nurse lives in chronic extremeness. No matter how, quote, normal a delivery is, the day a human or any animal gives birth is an exceptional day. That is how April explained it to me. Every time she walked into a room with a new patient, she would say, All right, honey, this is going to be a red-letter day. And then, whatever April would do, she would announce, like, We're going to get this IV placed for you. Or, We're going to get this Pitocin drip started. We're going to bring you some ice chips. You might think I'm repetitive and insincere, April said on our first break, sharing cheddar goldfish with me. But I speak the way I do for a reason. I took note of April's use of, quote, we, and the habit of speaking each action. This had an effect on the laboring women not unlike that of the more fantastical fictional scenes of communicating peace or dominance to wolves in the wilderness. Everyone gets negative online reviews, my supervisor, George, told me, the day after the parrot person had written up a vicious review. Yes, we know that, I said. And customers expect miracles, which, George was saying, is understandable, I was adding. But we have a protocol here, as you know. Once a team member reaches a dozen three-star or below reviews within a 12-month period, it should be calculated with percentages, not raw numbers. I can see good reason in that, George said, absolutely. But that's not what we do. I'm letting you know, simply, that you are now one shy of this number. And I felt humiliated by the conversation. Also, I felt that there was an error in it, a religious error. 
an error in how goodness was being assessed and invited. What I said out loud was, we're going to improve this situation. In my heart, I said, he doesn't know me. I'm often unknown. I will help him to know me. I don't fear death. I assume the other side of the door is okay. In the lowest moments of my life, when I've thought that it might be useful to exit my situation more fundamentally, I assume everyone feels this way, at least briefly, at one time or another. It was not fear that stopped me from taking action. Death is a mercy when it's time. That's how I was raised, and I stand by it, all the more so after years of bringing many a beloved creature across the greatest of divides. I feel like mentioning that I get consistently high marks for that service. I don't rush, I don't giggle, and I don't coerce people into sharing their emotions with me. I pay attention instead to the creature. Working again in the ER the evening following the discussion about my reviews, I met, one after the other, two more dogs, each belonging to a different household. Both had leaped over the bridge on 119, as Ohio had. It might appear that I am telling you about how my livelihood was threatened by poor reviews, but I am telling you instead something about dogs and their special gift and maybe what we or I can learn from them. The first of the leaping dogs that night was a terrier mix. Terriers are deranged animals who could probably teach us a lot about how brains pointlessly track small movements and changes. These traits of theirs far exceed those needed to hunt small rustling prey. My father and I raised a terrier mix whom we mislabeled as selfish. All she wanted to do was play ball until we saw her sleep by the door for three nights while her dog's sister was away at the hospital. This terrier mix, Sushi, was seven years old. He smelled like skunk. His human parent specified that he did not usually smell this way. But the human parent reported not seeing any skunk after having retrieved Sushi from his jump over the bridge. X-rays revealed no fractures. His human parent then asked if they could go. I deferred to Kelly, who was again working the desk and who is not judged by star ratings, since she is the person designated to communicate pricing. Not long after Sushi left, the other dog came in. Same leaping, same place. This dog had been on a walk, on a leash. He was a spectacular Irish wolfhound. He looked like the ghost of a horse. He looked like he had worked with headless people in a previous life and had not let those people feel ashamed about having no head. The wolfhound, whose name was Aggie, had tremendous grace and several contusions. He needed to be worked up for fractures and for the mystery of why a dog generally obedient had gone wild. The owner, an older woman with a long braid, told me that she had thought, is this mad cow disease? Is this some kind of poison in the brain? Do I have mad cow disease? Is it a climate thing? As Aggie was waiting for x-rays, I work triage. We had a sleepy cat suspected of obstruction a cat with a chronic cough, a listless dog with diarrhea who needed IV fluids and a workup. A parrot was brought in with reports of seizures. I could hear this being explained to Kelly. A parrot. Fear tiptoed clumsily down all the corridors of me. 
Then, when I peeked into the waiting room, I saw it was a different parrot and a different parrot person. She suddenly gets stiff and falls off the bar, then lies on the floor of the cage, the parrot person said. She lets me pet her while she's there, and she stares at me like she's looking for help. Then, after a few minutes, she's well again. It's happened a few times now. I did not intuit that she was lying, the human. She looked stunned like a cow in a traffic jam. I mean that in a nice way. Obviously, one doesn't side with the cars. Then she said, Why was a dog with diarrhea seen in front of a parrot with seizures and confusion? Dogs have diarrhea all the time, she said. As I tried to answer her, she began to film me. So now I had exceeded my allotment of negative reviews. It's not about understanding these people. It's about defanging these people, Kyle said to me. Kyle was young, maybe 25. He was a relatively new vet tech with us. He had a cheerful iguana tattoo on his neck and fingernails painted hot pink. He seemed fond of me, which I treasured. Avoiding making enemies has arguably prevented me from making friends, but that is something the father I keep in my mind has sometimes said. I said I didn't believe people could be defanged. Some people have fangs and like to bite other people. That's the way of the world. Kyle said he had a friend who was a herpetologist. He can walk through the woods and pick up all kinds of snakes that the rest of us would need to hide from. The snakes are still snakes, even venomous snakes, but he's not afraid, Kyle said, because he knows how to handle them. I'm also reasonably good at handling snakes, I said. Just take a deep breath, he said. When someone treats you like that, you just say to yourself, they don't know me. My mind returned to the jumping dogs, to that inky point I had made when the first dog, Ohio, was brought in. Why had he leaped out of his owner's truck? Why that day and not another day? Two dogs cannot form a pattern, but three, three is not chaos. Kyle suspected that the dogs were depressed. Kelly said that she didn't think that dogs got depressed. That's just not what dogs were like. Sad dogs, sure, but no, not depressed. She said she had known of a cyclist who had died near that bridge, and perhaps the dogs were seeing his ghost. I said to myself, these three dogs, Ohio and Sushi and Aggie, are reasonable dogs. They are doing this for a reason. When I brought up the mystery to George, the supervisor, he said I needed to focus on what and who was in front of me, and that if I incurred one more online bash, and it seemed to me almost certainly what that second parrot person would do, I would be taking two weeks unpaid leave for sensitivity training and client management skills, and that even at the end of that training, he could not guarantee me my position back. And he also said that it would be best if I wore my hair in a bun, that it was too long to be worn in a ponytail. A job listing came up at a horse farm about 45 minutes outside town. It was a position for two days a week. I have not spent much time with horses. Although their eyesight is partly monocular, and their visual range is so much more than our own humble 180 degrees, they share with us the specificity of a world seen from around five feet above the ground. When walking 
we aren't too different. I shared this thought, and it was not unwelcome, with the woman, recently widowed, who had placed the job posting. She had 16 horses and ran a riding school and had a very cluttered home. Very clean stables, though. She said that it was difficult when she lost her husband, but what haunted her nights was a horse of hers, spooked by a storm, who got tangled in some old rope left on a fence post. What she needed was pretty routine care for her horses, care that had previously been done by her husband. Before I left, she went into her cluttered home and came out with the cookbook that contained favorite recipes from our nation's first ladies, from Martha Washington through to Jacqueline Kennedy. I drove away reminding myself of my skills, with animals and also with the human species. To the small puppet of my father that I keep in my mind, I said, so many well-meaning people, and small-minded people too, told me nothing would come of me, and yet here I am, replete with skills. How had this happened? And had I lost my way? Did I feel hopeless and like if I were fired from my job, all that structured my life in a good and purposeful and meaningful way would be lost? I didn't feel like that. But also I did feel like that, acutely. I felt there was a very specific place for me in the world, a place that made sense for me and that there were very few or maybe no other such places. I was less afraid of death than ever. And a weird feeling was growing inside me. A feeling that I had never really become a vet. A feeling that I had tricked everyone. I was no more real than that cardboard man obsessed with grammar who lived behind the schoolroom chalkboard. I was already dead, almost. The puppet of my father shook his head. You see, he said, this is one of the many reasons that I remained an Anabaptist. The puppet of my father had a tendency toward oracular pronouncements. Was that his fault? My understanding was that this happened when I myself hit a mental block and could not see further. He was not perfectly reasonable, not even the real him that lived outside my mind. He had not wanted to take the medicine his doctor prescribed because it made his feet tingle, and he had found that intolerable. And we had argued about this, and I had treated him as if he were a child, which was wrong. I had not made him happy or well. I was failing the most basic ethical obligations. Perhaps I was no longer hewing closely to April's ways of being, the ways that had, paradoxically, by following them, allowed me to be myself. Too bad I didn't like myself much anymore. I found I was right there, on the bridge, the one over the Arikari Creek on Highway 119. It was windy. The water was running high and brown like melted Neapolitan ice cream. Was the water singing some song as it hurried forward so confidently? Sure it was. But its flow looked correct from where I was standing and looking at it with my eyes and no one else's. I wanted to see what the dogs had seen. I don't enjoy jumping. I thought I could scramble down the bank instead of jumping. I was on the path set by the dogs. Though absent, 
They were my guides and role models. The mud had limestone bits, and dandelion and foxtail did much of the work of holding the soil in place. It seemed unremarkable, even as there was reason to expect something very remarkable down there, closer to the water. I had a giddy sense of expectation, as if I were going to see a gorilla give birth, which I did once witness. I felt that I was nearing a knowledge or darkness. It was a childhood feeling, which meant that I trusted it. There was a magnet or a hole or energy perceptible to certain animals, and I, who felt myself to be an animal locked out of certain perceptions, was approaching it. It was muddy, and I was muddy, and the light of the moon was bright and loud. You may not believe it, and I may not tell anyone. I learned something about those dogs and from those dogs. They were not hurrying away from this world. They were not pursuing death. They were not deranged. They were not even melancholy. There was a smell. I could not place it. It is because our nostrils are too small and too close together that our scent location is so weak. So I lay down flat on the damp earth with my face tilted upward. I tried to be as quiet as possible. I closed my eyes and concentrated and imagined myself to be harmless, even wounded. And I tried very hard to be as if I could rely only on my sense of smell. I tried to locate that scent as precisely as I could, wishing my nostrils farther apart from each other. I did not succeed at that. But what I saw in the root system of a bankside oak tree when I opened my eyes was a collection of marbles, the marbles being eyes. What I saw from down in the mud was a crowd of minks, a family most likely. What had made those dogs jump was the scent of those minks. You might call that scent the scent of love. It had been an error that those dogs had made. But an error of the heart, my dad said to me, there in the mud. So, a worthwhile error. We have to make our own rules and our own judgments and not curse ourselves or others for the way we arrived in this world. Also, we need to build a higher railing on the bridge or otherwise devise a way to spare these dogs from injury. That is what I wanted to share with someone. I couldn't tell my father, whom I often lied about, pretending that he loved me in a beautiful and flawless way and that I loved him in a beautiful and flawless way. When I had last visited him, I had found a piece of paper near his bed on which he had written three columns close friends, okay friends, and not friends. It was only 11 people or so, and half of them I didn't know. There was too little that I knew about this man, who had at times yelled at me and at times asked me to finish my entire glass of milk, and who had let me sleep with the baby goats when I was afraid. Have I fulfilled my duty of joy to him? There in the mud I began to. Though I had been a veterinarian already for many years, that was when I became, in the eyes of the minks and myself, a true vet.
That was Rivka Galchin reading her story, How I Became a Vet. She's been writing fiction and nonfiction for The New Yorker since 2008. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Claire Louise Bennett reads Family Walls by Maeve Brennan. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.